Dale Carnegie in his perennial classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People, says that the sweetest word to any person is their own name in their language. And we're going to get to why that's important in just a moment. Right now, it's Holy Week or Passion Week. And here in Chi Alpha, we're continuing to walk through our Lenten season together through our journal and our reading plan. Today, we're going to be focusing on John chapter 20. We're towards the end of John's gospel account of the life of Jesus. And we're going to be in the first 18 verses. Now, this text is really interesting because it's full of things that are obvious. It's full of things that are subtle. And it's one of those texts, man, we could spend so long digging in together. So I encourage you, take notes, grab a Bible, open up version, and I would love for us to journey together as this is our last sermon in our Lenten sermon series. And of course, on the horizon is Good Friday and Easter. One of the things I love about being a follower of Jesus is that Easter gets to be a part of our life, a part of our disciplines every day because we see Jesus, we've encountered Jesus on this side of the cross and tomb and resurrection. So spoiler alert, in case you didn't know, not only does he die, but he comes back to life. And we've talked about it before and I'm sure he will throughout this semester. He's actually coming back Again, let's dig into the text. John chapter 20, 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. There's a parenthetical in verse 9 that's important. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were standing. We take a breath, we take a pause, and there's another kind of chapter, another movement in this story. And it starts in verse 11. Now Mary, and this is Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said all these things to her. One of my favorite uh, 
parts of this passage is, did you guys catch that? In early on in verse, in chapter 20, it said this, it says um, in verse three and then four, like the disciples are running. They weren't originally at the tomb. Mary was the only one there and they were running. And then I don't know if you caught this, but it was like, it was like there was a race, right? And it says both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached it first. Well, who was the other disciple in verse four? Verse two tells us the other disciple is the one that Jesus loved. Funny enough, it's actually John, the beloved. I love it. He just takes a moment and he just basically says, for all of you guys wondering, I can run faster than Simon Peter. And then Simon seems to get a little revenge and that Simon goes in first, it seems. And then John enters the tomb. Besides that brief aside, which I think honestly does show us that these were humans writing these accounts inspired by the Spirit. I don't know why John put that in there. He doesn't even mention his name, so maybe it's like a a net neutral in terms of a humble brag. Um, But what I, I like about this passage is that we are seeing the disciples of Jesus from Mary to John to Simon Peter and the rest, the end of this chapter, tomorrow's reading will talk about Thomas the twin or doubting Thomas, but it's showing them wrestling with the reality that their teacher, their savior, the healer, the person who had just raised Lazarus from the dead is now himself dead. And and not only that, his body is missing. He's no longer in the tomb. And it seems like He's been taken. Other gospel accounts tell us that this is actually one of the fears of um, the Roman government that was partially in charge of his execution. They were afraid that the followers of Jesus would try to steal the body and then claim a resurrection. But here we see that they are frantic. They are worried. And then we read the parenthetical in verse 9. It says that at this point, they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I was reading this great book, The Bible Believer's Handbook about the Gospel of John by W. Max Aderman, and he does this great job going chapter by chapter asking questions about belief through the Gospel of John. And one of the questions that he asks in chapter 20 is, what do we believe about the empty tomb? And as followers of Jesus, our entire faith, our entire belief system is staked in the resurrection of Jesus. And what's interesting here and what I think is important to note is that Mary was the only one at the tomb and she was there early when it was dark. Now, she wasn't there because she was expecting a resurrection, but I love that in her grief, she decided to go as close to Jesus as she could. She decided that, man, I don't know what's going to happen with our community, with this messianic Jewish movement called the way that we know as the early church. And yet she takes her grief, she takes her disappointment, and she goes to the last place where she knew Jesus to be. That provides some great advice and a practical principle for us. My mentor, Dr. Chris Foster, said it like this, don't doubt in the dark what you saw in the light. In other words, if you're at a place and you feel it challenging, difficult to hear the voice of God, maybe you're waiting for discernment or direction. My humble advice would be go back to the thing that he most recently said to you that you remember, whether it's through scripture, through a a word, through the Holy Spirit, maybe it was through community in your life group. And whatever he most recently said to you, ask yourself the difficult question, am I walking in light of that? Am I walking in obedience to that? 
Mary is such a great example as a disciple of Jesus, someone who was in a difficult situation to be sure, and yet she still showed up. I mean, I want to honor those of you that are here that have been a part of our community, and it's been challenging to be engaged as we're virtual, as our campus ministry became an online ministry. And yet, in your grief, in your disappointment, in all the challenges, you continued to show up. And that's one of the lessons that we can learn from Mary, is that she was there, it was dark, it was early, and she was the only one, and yet she knew that she had to get as close to Jesus as possible. She had to get as close to her Savior as she could. All right, and then we jump right into that foot race that I mentioned between Simon Peter and the author of this book, John, John the Beloved, the one that Jesus loved. He's got several different monikers or names. And what's really interesting is at this point in the story, they're still wondering who stole the body of Jesus, right? They are not yet connecting the dots between the Old Testament prophecies, the final words of Jesus, and what's happening. And can we really blame them? I mean, they're dealing with grief. They've, been, they've seen Jesus a part of this public trial and execution. They're seeing this demonic relationship between religious leaders and political powers that have led to the death of their Messiah. And they're just trying to pick up the pieces of their lives. Many of them left their vocations. They spent months and years away from their family of origin, traveling and teaching and ministering with Jesus during these three years. And it seems like it's all coming undone. It's all unraveled. If we go back to the text, it's really interesting because in verse 10 it says, Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So Simon, Peter, and John, they investigate the tomb. It's interesting that the stone is rolled away, which would be very difficult for... It wasn't Mary that did it. It would be a group of people that did it. But there was also Roman officials or guards. Other gospel accounts tell us stationed outside. So that begs some more questions. It's almost like a crime scene at this point. It's not yet in their mind the hopeful scene that we imagine or that we picture because we have the knowledge of what comes next. They were still in the middle of grief and crisis, and it seems like the story took another sad turn. But again, I've got to give it up to Mary in verse 11. She stood outside the tomb crying. She stayed. When the other disciples went back, she stayed. Now now picture this. She was going early. The tomb is empty. She then runs back Tell Simon and John they race and they're all coming back together. And then the guys go home and she's there faithful, available, grieving, but trying to do so in a way that's healthy, in a way that's connected to Jesus. And then this is where the story begins to get hopeful. This is where springtime begins to break through. The angels start talking to her. The angels appear. They're saying, why are you crying? And she's saying, they took my Lord away. I don't know where they put him. She wants to make sure to give him a proper burial to ensure that his body is not vandalized, is not stolen, is not politicized. And then what's interesting is she said, when Jesus is there, he's speaking to her in verse 15, and she doesn't know it's Jesus, okay? Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? She thinks it's the gardener. That's awkward. 
And she says, if you've carried him away, look, if you've done this crime, just tell me where he is and I'll retrieve him. She's not even worried about consequences. She just wants to put Jesus back in the tomb to let him rest in peace. And then in verse 18, this is where the story turns. Jesus said to her, Mary. And at that moment when she hears her name said by Jesus, the way he said it for years, as she's heard him teach and preach, doing signs and wonders, that's when it clicks for her. And it harkens back to a few chapters ago, and German spoke about this, where the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd. And she understood, she knew what her name sounded like on the lips of her Savior. And she turns and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And that's the end of verse 16. Man, I I love that she made herself available for this miraculous moment. She showed up even though she didn't know how the story would end. She showed up alone. She stayed late. She got up early. She decided to place herself in a position of expectation even though she didn't know what to expect. And even though she couldn't have imagined this resurrection moment. See, sometimes those of us that are needing breakthrough, that are needing freedom from bondage, that need God to speak to us clearly, maybe about our passions or vocation, a lot of times we want the answer and we wish it would kind of come in the form of a fortune cookie. It would come in the form of an email or a tweet. But really, the idea of the Christian faith is about placing ourselves in proximity positioning ourselves near the presence of God and then our expectations that he will move whether whether we feel it or not, whether we know it's ahead or not, whether we're experiencing uncertainty or not, that we would position ourselves in proximity to what he's doing and to who he is. And I love that Mary clearly took her time as a disciple seriously because she recognized his voice. Sometimes, whether it's the noise of social media, it's navigating how do we engage with honoring our parents, but maybe not obeying our parents as we're engaging in emerging adulthood in undergraduate years. There's a lot of voices, but do you know the voice of the Lord? Do you know the way your name sounds when he speaks to you? Do we listen when we pray or are we simply reading out our Amazon wish list for our life, hoping that in some way he would cosmically put our life in the center of success and comfort? No, Mary wasn't looking for a solution to her problems. She was seeking out the Prince of Peace. She was searching to be reconnected with her purpose for living. And Jesus showed up. He spoke her name. He started to engage with her. And then the story continues. I hope you didn't miss this. He then instructs her to go and tell others. And Mary, in verse 18, went to the disciples with this news. And this is really what evangelism is. What sharing your faith is all about. Saying, I have seen the Lord. And then she told him the things that he had said to her. 
Sharing the gospel isn't memorizing a line from your life group leader or campus ministry staff from weekly worship and then saying it at the most opportune moment to your not yet Christian brother or uncle or mom or Zoom classmate or roommate. No, it's about being with Jesus and then telling others what you've experienced and what the Lord has spoken to you. In a post-truth age, in a season where fake news can be a write-off for anything that I disagree with or anything I have a distaste for, the world doesn't need another clearer, slicker, more produced set of facts. The world is longing to be around people who have been in the presence of Jesus and then talk about it. See, sometimes I think our community is really good in these times, whether it's Advent or Lent, whether it retreats or dive deep, that we would press in to who Jesus is. But the question is, are we bringing others along with us or are we afterwards telling others what God has done? See, when when grace truly gets a hold of us, it becomes too big for just us. It becomes something that we tell others about and it's less about doing it kind of forced or out of obligation, but it's something that happens so good to us that we can't help tell others. It's like when you get that new phone, you try that new drink at Starbucks, you go to that new restaurant, you had such a great time, you just can't help being the best advertisement for it amongst your friends online and offline. Well, that's what sharing about Jesus should look like, that it should be of such importance to us. It should bring such goodness and clarity to our lives that we can't help but let that overflow into our conversations. And not just our conversations with people in Chi Alpha, but our conversations with people who are in relationship with us that may not be in relationship yet with God. I think it's also interesting to note here that Mary is the first person to proclaim the gospel. On her second run back to the men who were for some reason nowhere to be found, she is commissioned by Jesus himself to share the good news, to share the gospel, that Jesus is in the process of ascending to the Father, that death and sin did not have the final word that after three days he has risen and he is on the move again. One of the things I love about being a part of this community and many communities like it is that we really do believe in all the way back in Genesis when we read about the Imago Dei, the image of God. The Trinity is speaking in Genesis 1 and 2 saying that, man, that we've created humankind in our image, speaking of that Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In male and female, we have created them in our likeness. The character of God, the attributes of God cannot be fully reflected or communicated when only one gender is doing the talking. When we don't create space for women in our community, women in our culture, women on our campus and in our city to lead, to speak truth, to proclaim the gospel, we are settling for something, something that's only half-baked. We are settling for something that isn't the full picture of what the Lord would have 
for us. Now, many of us probably grew up in different traditions that said different things about women in ministry and parsed out what the marriage relationship could or should look like or how does local church governance actually get fleshed out. But man, I want to challenge you, if you could for a moment... Man, put aside and just think through this. Like Jesus, the most strategic, most brilliant thinker. And for those of us that maybe would view God as as sovereign in control of it all, clearly he is positioning and promoting this woman, a disciple, Mary, into ministry. And I really do think, this is kind of glib, I know, but I stole it from N.T. Wright. Like if we start at the resurrection, if Jesus really had a problem with women proclaiming the gospel, this wouldn't be the scene that would have unfolded. And it wasn't just because the men weren't there that now the woman who's second best gets to share the gospel. No. Mary was a disciple. She was faithful. She was available. And she was hungry. And the Lord used that. The Lord saw that and honored that and used that. I want to be the type of leader and the type of community that allows people's voices to be heard that otherwise the church or culture has silenced, has put obstacles in their way to be able to speak. That's why in these coming chapters and then in Acts, which continues the story out of the Gospels, we see that prophetic word from Joel come alive that in the end times, in the last days, that the Spirit will move on men and women, on those that are prominent and those that are servants, on those that are Greek and those that are Jewish, that the Spirit will not discriminate, that He will work and move and speak life and truth through all. And Jesus, as we'll continue reading over the next few days, begins to make a way for this reality by saying, hey, there's an advocate, there's a helper coming in the Holy Spirit. And I'm going so that the advocate would come. And he hinted at that a few chapters ago, and we'll see that in its fullness soon. Man, we need both Jesus, the teacher, and the Holy Spirit, the advocate, to help us live in tune with the gospel, to help us live according to the unforced rhythms of grace. In this passage, we learn a few things, and we learn that it's important to place ourselves in proximity to where Jesus might be, to where we think Jesus is moving and working. We also see that it's okay to express our emotions of grief and sadness in the presence of Jesus. We see the value through the life of Mary Magdalene of knowing, of tuning our ear to this specific voice that is Jesus. And then we see the excitement of when we truly experience Jesus and He changes us, He changes the way we interact with others. We can't help but to tell. We can't help but to share. One of the ways we say that in Chi Alpha is that witness leads to witness. Man, you can't witness to what God's doing unless you've been with him. And if you've been with him, you can't help but to witness to say, this is what I've experienced. And I think I'd like for you to experience it as well. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things 
to her. I'm so thankful that God uses people who may be on the outside margins of society or culture, who may have even been silenced by the church. I'm so thankful that God is intentional in what he does. I'm thankful that later on in the pastoral epistles, we see, we see Paul affirming women in leadership, affirming women as deacons. We see Paul's letters were most likely delivered to these various house churches by women. I think this is an important part of the story. And a lot of times we can stop our honor of women theologically with Mary, but really the mother of Jesus, but it goes beyond that. It means looking from the Old Testament to the New. The way that God works in fullness is by expressing himself through all of humanity. So my question as we begin to worship today, man, are you attuned to the voice of Jesus? And if not, would you make space to begin to learn how his voice sounds? And then secondly, are there voices in your life that for some reason or other, you've silenced, you've not learned from, you've not positioned yourself to be led by. Man, would you view this story as a kind challenge and rebuke to get an opportunity to see more of the fullness of God by listening to the fuller voice of those who are leading, both men and women? As we worship together, I pray the Holy Spirit would help us. He would be our advocate and our counselor as we seek to follow Jesus together.